electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, an historic jobs report during the COVID-19 crisis. The unemployment rate jumped 10% in a single month, setting a new post-World War II record at 14.7%. Market historian Jeremy Siegel. Certainly a a short-term shock of of unprecedented magnitude. I mean, the numbers were tragic, but but not surprising. And Uber CEO Derek Hazrashahi on driving through the COVID crisis. Everything's on the table now. This is a deep crisis. And while we are very well suited to weather the crisis, we still have to make adjustments in it. And that absolutely does include costs. It's Friday, May 8th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. This has got to be the most heartbreaking day in the, in the history of the job market. On today's podcast, we're starting with an historic jobs number. This morning, the U.S. Labor Department reported that 20 and a half million jobs were lost in April. The unemployment rate jumped from around 4% to 14.7%. 14.7. This is the highest unemployment rate since the Great Depression, when the U.S. hit its all-time high at 24.9% in 1933. Since then, there have been only a few other jumps as dramatic and as heartbreaking. In the 1982 recession, and then nearly three decades later during the financial crisis, the unemployment rate hit that recession's peak at 10% in late 2009. Eleven years later, this past February, the U.S. jobs market was on fire. We had hit highs for payroll gains during the recession recovery. Now, things have certainly shifted, although some Americans are still hopeful. Of the 20.5 million Americans no longer on company payrolls, 18 million believe they're unemployed temporarily and will be rehired. Of course, that's up to the companies doing the hiring. Austin Goolsby, President Obama's chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, he's the voice you heard at the very beginning, pointed out that though the unemployment rate is lower than economists forecast, it still jumped 10% in a single month. During the Depression, the unemployment rate jumped 10% in an entire year. Today, after Joe, Becky, and Andrew digested the jobs report, they turned to Jeremy Siegel, a market historian and professor at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School. Here's Joe Kernan. Jeremy, um, you know, for many, many years, you've been saying that the stock market over time goes up and it's a great economy, great country, great things happen. I don't know if you were thinking about the coronavirus. How has that changed your long-term view of of the the stock market? Well, it hasn't changed the long-term view. Certainly a a short-term shock of of unprecedented magnitude. I mean, the numbers were tragic, but but not surprising uh, from what we see. And really, uh, I follow economic news all the time. But I've been following less these announcements that we've been getting because it's the rear view mirror. Uh, You know, when I get up in the morning, actually, I check all the virus data, uh, the trends in in the virus, the trends in the developments in therapeutics and vaccines or Scott Gottlieb, who is who is my guru. That, to me, more informs 
what what is going to happen in the future than getting some historical report on how tragic uh, this uh, virus has affected our economy. So what's long term and what's intermediate term and, and when, you know, when do you get back to doing what you would normally do? I mean, are you going to take off a year? Well, one thing that's very important and something I emphasized very early on when we began to get this virus news, and I, I think it's an important reason why the stock market has actually held up so well, is that more than 90 percent of the value of stocks is from earnings more than 12 months in the future. So these next 12 months are going to be disaster. <laughs> it is a disaster. Uh, but that, you know, stocks are the longest lived assets and more than 90 percent of their value is earnings from the second quarter of 2021 beyond. Now, what we're going to be there depends on therapeutics and vaccines. And that's why any encouraging news on that is so great for the stock market, far more important than, you know, whether unemployment claims are going up or down or durable goods are going up or down. I mean, we know that this impact has been dramatic. If we get therapeutics that reduce the severity of, of this disease to a bad flu or a vaccine that could inoculate the, the uh, at-risk members of, of the community, again, that reduce that fear, uh, wow, I, I, I think 2021 can be a boom year. So you, uh, a very with the liquidity that the Fed is adding, unprecedented. Uh, it could be a really good year. So, okay, two questions. Number one, uh, you think when we were at the lows, whether a month, six weeks ago, whenever that was, you think that was a time that if you could have stomached it, you should have actually been been buying. Uh, and do you foresee any problem with? Uh, with the government and the Fed extricating itself from this, which which could maybe put a damper on what happens 12 to 18 months out? I do think that the March low is definitely going to be the low. I mean, the only worst-case scenario is that there's a huge second wave in October. We don't have therapeutics. No vaccine is available. And, it, you know, the second wave of the Spanish flu, as you know, was actually more severe than the first. And, and there's a total shutdown again. I mean, that's the only scenario. Now, I don't think that's going to happen. I think that's a low probability event. It can't be taken off. Uh, what the, the statistic that I actually look at very closely, and this is related to your question, is the monetary expansion. Uh, I mean, the monetary expansion, M1 uh, money supply, uh, has gone up 19% in six weeks. That is unprecedented. That is more than the entire year that followed the Lehman bankruptcy uh, in September of 2008. So in eight weeks, we have expanded liquidity in our uh, financial system by more than we did in an entire year before. That liquidity, once confidence begins to recover, wow, and that's going to go into spending and I think that's going into the stock market. And I think one reason the stock market is only 15 percent below its all time high is they're looking at that liquidity and say, hey, where is that going? So you, you think the lows are in. You think yes. that it's possible that, that we see new highs within the next year and a half, two years? Yeah, I, I, I actually do think it's possible with that liquidity 
going into the market. I also think there'll probably be more inflation than we've seen in two decades. Uh, uh, I'm predicting three, four percent inflation. I know that seems impossible now because prices are going down so much. But uh, again, when, when this liquidity has got to find it somewhere to go, it's all being repressed. It reminds me a little bit like World War II. You know, everyone is rationed. The Fed built up a lot of liquidity, uh, and it exploded in the in the post war uh, boom that we had that no one expected. You know, the the world was thinking, oh, we're going back into depression. Military expenditure is going to be way down, and instead, that liquidity built up, had a had a consumer boom, and and was very good for the stock market. Jeremy, why wouldn't a ten billion dollars? Why wouldn't a ten trillion dollar uh, balance sheet? And uh, $25 trillion or whatever it's going to be in, in, uh, uh, in fiscal, it'll be even more than that by then. Why wouldn't that, when it's engendering inflation, cause rates to go up to where we'd really have a problem? Uh, and a lot of times when you have interest payments that high, it, it puts a damper on economic growth. Well, rates are definitely going to go. I mean, I, I think the 40-year bull market in bonds which is one of the longest bull markets in world history, is over. We saw the lows in March. And I think rates are going to go. The Fed will keep the rate, short rate low for a long time, and they're going to let inflation run be the, beyond its 2% limit. The long rate's going to creep up 1, 2, 3, 4, as we get to 21, 22 going forward. We're not going back to those, you know, 16% rates we had 1981, anything like that. I'm not predicting hyperinflation. I'm just predicting a much more stronger push on this liquidity into these next few years. And, you know, moderate inflation is not bad for the stock market. It is terrible for the bond market, but not bad for the stock market. All right, Jeremy Siegel uh, of, of Wharton. Uh, and thank you very much. It's good to see you. I haven't seen you in a while. Next on Squawk Pod, Uber CEO points out a surprising bright spot in their business this spring, food delivery. Will it be enough for the ride-sharing company's fortunes amid coronavirus? As people return, we do think that the pricing of getting Uber ride is going to be attractive. And on Uber Eats as well, we've been reducing the cost of delivery, especially for those small and medium restaurants, to make sure that the friction of getting onto our systems uh, and using our services is as low as it can be. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin. Ride-hailing giant Uber reporting its biggest loss in three quarters as the coronavirus batters the global economy. Uh, But shares are much higher this morning after optimistic comments from the company's CEO on demand that he says may be returning. Joining us right now first on CNBC is Uber CEO Dara Khosrowshahi. Dara, it's great to see you. Uh, I was just thinking we were sitting together outside of the New York Stock Exchange nearly almost almost to the day a year ago uh, when you were pursuing uh, your IPO and what a year uh, it's been. I want to, though, go straight to the moment that we are in 
and, and really try to understand what you're seeing. Um, one of the things you said on the call yesterday was that there was a sense uh, that we're seeing early signs of a recovery, uh, potentially a bottom. And I, I wanted to understand what's leading you to that view. Uh, thank you, Andrew. That, uh, that IPO seems very, very far away. In hindsight, we're very happy that we went after it because it really has provided us with a fortress balance sheet to be able to take on these incredibly difficult times. Uh, for us, Q1 was a tale of two quarters. Uh, January and February were strong. We were coming in as expected to, str- uh, to stronger, especially on the profitability side. And then Corona hit. Uh, March was difficult. And in April, we saw our rides business, which is our largest business, it's very profitable, uh, be down about 80% on a year-on-year basis, which, as you know, is a shock to the system. Uh, step one for us is how do we make sure our drivers and riders are safe? How do we make sure our communities are safe? How, how do we make sure our employees are safe? But as we have uh, taken care of our communities and riders or employees, we're now looking forward to the business. Uh, and we're making adjustments. We're making significant adjustments to our costs. Uh, and we are seeing in the rides business, uh, while it is down substantially, there's no denying that, uh, it is. it does seem to be off the bottoms. Last week, for example, uh, bookings in the U.S. were up 12% week on week uh, and getting better, getting a little bit better off of a, off of a pretty difficult bottom. On the eat side, we're seeing that business actually substantially accelerating. That was a big business for us that was already growing very, very quickly in the 50% range. And in April, we saw the growth outside of India, which we divested, around 89% as more and more people sheltered at home, uh, as more and more restaurants signed up for our service. And obviously, delivery is a very, very growth area for us. So it was was mixed. We're still working on uh, on how we react to the crisis. We've got a great balance sheet and we're a diversified business, which we think gives us an advantage in a very difficult time. Let's talk about the strength piece, which is this eats business, which, you know, uh, it w- that was going to be a, a loss making business for a long time. Um, explain what you think is happening, how it transforms itself and whether you think that this is. Uh, just to pull forward, if you will, because of this unusual moment we're in, or whether you think it's transformational in terms of what the world looks like, not just in the next several months, but years from now. Well, we, we think that it is transformational in that uh, EATS is becoming a more and more important lifeline for many restaurants out there, especially small and medium enterprises, uh, dining in is essentially over uh, for now and for some foreseeable future. Uh, so many of these small businesses are finding a lifeline, finding a business in delivery. And I think that they're discovering that there's a lot of demand out there. Uh, we've always seen historically that eaters, when they start using eats, they stick around with a service. It's a very high frequency service. And once you try it, you tend to stick with a service over a period of time. And we think that we have just had an enormous influx of people trying it, a category getting much, much bigger. We are now working to get into some uh, adjacent categories like grocery, like delivery as well. So we think it's an accelerator, but it's also a transformation. The, the eats business just got a lot bigger. Dara, I want to bring Becky in in just one moment, but I have one quick question, which is cost. One of the things you're doing is is planning to provide, if you're not already doing it, PPE masks 
uh, and other supplies for your drivers. And I'm trying to understand what you think that does to your cost base long term. Yeah, Andrew, this, it's definitely going to cost us, um, but, but the cost is not the forefront in our minds, frankly, right now. Uh, safety is the first, first priority for us. Um, when we reach out to our riders and eaters, they want to feel safe during this deeply, deeply uncertain time. Uh, and we have ordered millions of masks. We're ordering cleaning supplies, talking to, to many, many players out there to as consistently as we can to get masks and cleaning supplies uh, in our cars, um, we are working on very interesting technology that we're going to introduce to the public as it relates to safety, uh, which we think is unique in the in- industry. We want to set the standard, uh, and I think a lot of the competition will follow. The business itself, the well, business model mean? of Rise, has the kinds of profits that we think can ultimately support these costs. But right now, it's about safety first and then manage costs later. And I do think that's the right priority for us. Hey, Derek, can I go back just to Uber Eats? Yeah, just going back to Uber Eats, because, you know, that was a little contentious even before we got into this pandemic about how restaurants were getting their cut of what the profit was going to be and how Uber Eats was taking its cut. And I know there was a little bit of back and forth where people were trying to figure out how that was going to work. It's going to get even more complicated now that restaurants are facing such financial issues and problems of their own, and they've seen such a huge loss of revenue. So how, how does it work? How much of of that money goes to Uber for Uber Eats and how much goes to the restaurant and how do you try and find good partners who, where you can all work around a smaller pie? Sure, absolutely. So um, when you look at the Uber Eats business, the cut we get paid for uh, our commission, so to speak, and then the cost of delivery as well. Uh, and the, that's, that's expressed as, a, as adjusted never, uh, revenue margin of the business. The adjusted net revenue uh, margin of the business is around 11%. Uh, and the Eats business right now is not making a profit. We lost about $300 million in EBITDA in a quarter. We think that profitability will be consistent in Q2 and then will improve going forward. But we're still losing money in Eats. So I think that we are doing our very best to set and create the most efficient delivery mechanism uh, we're not making a lot of money on this business, so it's not like anyone is charging undue rents. And at this point, we believe that the best way to get outsized demand to our restaurants is to take down delivery fees as much as we can, especially in small and medium restaurants out there, to make sure we push very big demand from our consumers who are at home, who are going to order out to the restaurants to give them that lifeline and allow them to thrive again and build again. Uh, in this new environment, which is going to be different. Hey, Darren, you alluded to technology that you're working on. What kind of technology in terms of uh, that, that would, that would help tuned. with we'll, the safety we'll, issue we'll, here? Yeah, we'll, we'll have more to tell you. There's, there's a lot that we have to show, but um, we do have the best uh, technical team. And, for example, on the safety side, um, one interesting technology that we're going to be um, shifting with some great work from our engineers is that we had a selfie type of technology to make sure that the driver who was licensed to drive, who was licensed to be on, on the platform, was the actual driver who's driving you on a daily basis. We're using those kinds of technologies to make sure that the driver is making safe choices, including having a mask on. And are you anticipating requiring all passengers to wear masks? Do you anticipate providing those masks. I should say, by the way, as this interview has been going on, a driver tweeted at me saying that he's not getting 
PP says he doesn't understand what that's about. I don't know if, if, if you, how that's working uh, in this particular moment. But just speak again, if you could, to the mask issue and what that looks like. Absolutely. So we are taking the lead of um, governments, first of all. There are going to be different laws on a local basis, and we want to make sure that we abide by those, uh, by those laws. Um, we are in the process of securing all this, all the PPEs and the masks, and the fulfillment, getting those to the drivers themselves is very, very difficult, as you can imagine. We have some centers where drivers can come pick them up. We try to mail them to their homes, et cetera. So we're by no means perfect, uh, and we're really going to take the leads of the governments, and you know, we're very global company, city by city, state by state, we're going to make sure that we comply with the laws and that we set the standards for safety. In in terms of uh, making additional adjustments to the business, layoffs, real estate issues, uh, you've spoken about some of that earlier uh, this year, but I'm curious if you expect there to be more. We, um, We do have to adjust our cost base to the new reality. The rides business, like we said, it was down 80%. It's coming off of a, of a low. Uh, and we stated to Wall Street that we are going to be profitable. Our goal was to be profitable in Q4 of this year. Um, that's going to be delayed until next year. But that is going to require a shift in cost base and taking a look at where we've uh, made bets. We did announce a layoff. It was very difficult of some really great people uh, this last week. Uh, we announced the merger, for example, of our jump bike su- subsidiary with Lime to create the largest players but take those losses off the books. So everything's on the table now. This is this is a deep crisis. And while we are very well suited to weather the crisis, we still have to make adjustments in that, and that absolutely does include costs. Policy question. As you know, there has been a debate for many, many years about gig workers, the responsibilities of the company uh, to its contractors, whether they should be considered employees and the like. And clearly, so many of, of, of your drivers could now be considered in many respects frontline workers during this pandemic. And I think there's a newfound respect and appreciation across the country uh, for all of the people that are working, uh, whether they're working at Walmart uh, at the checkout counter, whether they're, they're an Uber driver, bringing people food, bringing people the necessary supplies. And I just wonder whether you think it changes the conversation uh, in a different way, makes it actually more, I don't want to say more complicated, but potentially more complicated for a company like Uber who may have to take on more and more responsibilities for the people that it's working with? Well, we hope it changes the conversation. Uh, we, we do believe that these workers deserve protections. Uh, and we've always been a proponent of a model that creates flexible work. You can get on uh, any time that you want, you can earn any time you want. If you don't want to earn, you can you can do something else. And I actually think in this economy where jobs and earnings are going to be at such a premium, it's all the more important to have a system like ours, which can be an entry point into earnings. Now, we've always been a proponent of flexible earnings for anyone. And, and I think in this environment, it's all the more important with protections, uh, with health care protections, uh, with minimum earnings. And that is absolutely a dialogue that we want to get into. Uh, and we believe that that dialogue is going to create and, and what we are standing up for is going to create a better system. Um, it's going to be an on-ramp for work and it's going to be work with minimum earnings protections and health protections as well. 
Dara, does that mean that you'd be willing to consider a worker who spends more than 40 hours a week as an Uber driver, as, as an employee? The model that we're talking about is that you can work as many hours as you want during the week. It doesn't matter if you uh, work 20 hours a week or 40 hours a week, and you get protections based on the number of hours uh, that you work. You know, I think this system of uh, if you don't work 40 hours, you're not full-time. If you work 40 hours, you're full-time. And then there's this hard break between the two. That's the old world, but, right? It's, it's actually if you're putting in the hours, mm-hmm. you should get minimum earnings based on the hours that you're working, and you should get health care based on the hours that you're working. And if you have a have and have nots based on a particular number of hours work, that doesn't make sense in a world in a technical forward world. Well, does that mean you'd be play- paying for the health care benefits for those people who are working yes. 20 hours or 40 hours or 60 hours? How, yes, how, based, how, how would the benefits on, work out? Based on we would put um, we've actually uh, talked to folks about this. We would put monies into a fund based on how much our drivers or couriers have, have worked that would go to fund health care benefits. Uh, and they would have minimum earnings as well. These are the discussions that we want to have with, but, with government. And again, you okay, can but, have the but let, me, let me ask about that. I mean, what's the difference in having them called employees or having them pay this pool? Is, is it a much lesser amount of money that you'd be putting into a health care plot than you would if, it, if they were working 40 hours or something? I, I understand your point yeah. that, that it's not fair to cut it off at 20 hours. But I would also understand the point of somebody who's working 60 hours saying, I'm still not going to get what I would get if I was a full time employee somewhere else. How, how does that break down? Yeah, I think a lot of full-time employees get different healthcare coverages, so it's difficult to generalize and say it's going to be equal to X or Y. But what we're aiming for is healthcare that um, would be generally comparable, healthcare that works to protect you and minimum earnings uh, based on a number of hours worked. And what we're looking for essentially is that flexible on-ramp or off-ramp. You want to work, you get the benefits. You don't want to work, you don't. Uh, finally, Dara, I, one of the things that I, I'm curious about is what you think is going to happen to pricing. Uh, you know, in, a, in the old world, there used to be uh, huge demand, obviously, especially at certain times. There was surge pricing, um, premiums in, in a world where maybe there's going to be a little less moving around. Uh, what that what happens? So I think that in, in a world where you've got less demand for ridership, usually uh, pricing remain somewhat subdued. So we don't see, and, and by the way, that, that's not a bad thing. As people return uh, with the economic difficulties there, we do think that the pricing of getting Uber ride is going to be attractive. And then on Uber Ease as well, we've been reducing the cost of delivery, especially for those small and medium restaurants, to make sure that the friction of getting onto our systems uh, and using our services is as low as it can be. So I think pricing is gonna be a good place when, when things come back. And again, we're seeing demand slowly come back. We've seen week-on-week demand for rides now increase four weeks in in a row. We know that the road road to recovery is going to be uneven, but at least the green shoots are there, and and we're going to work to be kind of a sponsor of those green green shoots. Well, uh, we're we're glad to see uh, the green shoots, and we're glad uh, to see you this morning. So thank you so much for joining us, Darren. Uh, Stay safe and healthy out there, and we, we look forward to seeing you again. And thank all of your drivers. Uh, who are doing really important work out there to keep uh, all of us moving around, especially the people who need to be right now. Yeah, we thank Thanks. our we thank our drivers and our and our, our couriers every day. Thank you. 
At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. That's the show for today. Thank you for listening to Squawk Pod for another week. There are so many economic and human tragedies that we report on every day. So we'd like to take a moment right now to celebrate a few of the special milestones for the extended Squawk family. For all of you making the most of remote graduations, proms, first communions, and other milestones, congratulations. We just want all of these kids to know how proud we are of them, and we want to give our own little shout-out celebration of some of life's joys. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew. Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. And to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, wherever you listen, we'll be there. And we'll be right back here on Monday. Have a good weekend. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash.